I'm conductor and creator Timothy Myers, and I can't stop chasing the question, what would the world look like with more listening? This is Listening on Purpose. Hello, dear listeners. This is Tim. Welcome to the finale of season two of Listening on Purpose. I'm really glad you're here, and I've just loved being on this journey with all of you and want to first say thank you for being here. Thank you for your support of the podcast and for your willingness to really dig into these conversations. Uh, this season has been full of great guests who brought a lot of insights, um, individuals and thought leaders that really challenged me to think differently, to, to listen to myself in a different way and to listen and connect with others in a different way. And it's my sincere hope that you also are gaining insight into yourself and others through each episode and that you're able to put some of these concepts into action in your own life, uh, like, like I'm trying to do as I learn along with you. My team and I thought it would be really interesting to wrap up the season by highlighting a few of the conversations that were really super impactful in hopes that sort of leaving you with some of these nuggets um, gives you something to chew on while you're waiting for season three, which is already in process. Um, something else special about this episode is that you're going to hear some moments from the uh, cutting room floor, so to speak, material that didn't make the final cut of an episode, but that we thought you'd be really interested to hear and would also bring some more impactful insights to bear. So here we go. I'm so glad you're here. This is the season finale of Listening on Purpose, season two. Midlife can be a sensitive topic for some and also a period of life that has a lot of stigma attached to it. And I can, I can tell you this because I, I'm in it right now. And uh, as I'm finding in my own experience, while some things about midlife can be unsettling, it's also a really profound time to examine one's purpose and impact. This conversation with Chip Conley was one of my favorites from this season. And it was a very intimate conversation. It was just across a dining room table in Austin, Texas. And if you listen to the episode, you, you heard that I just started off by just being super vulnerable about where I am in my life and, and how I'm feeling. And through our time together, Chip really helped me know better how to embrace um, this stage of life. And one of the things that stuck with me from this episode was this tool that he introduced called appreciative inquiry. Now, appreciative inquiry is a great exercise for listening to yourself and to others. This has no, uh, no specific attachment to midlife. Uh, I think this is something that is incredibly practical and applicable for wherever you are in life and all kinds of situations in which you might find yourself, whether it's personal or professional or anything else. This conversation also moved me because of the way that Chip helps us understand just how critical talking about midlife is for our communities at large and um, having empowering conversations around the value of mid and later life. So enjoy this clip from my conversation with Chip Conley. <laughs> 
in the book, you talk about questions. Yes. This is something you mentioned earlier, but this is something that's super practical, right? For listeners to just be like, okay, I can do that now. Yep. And you talk about asking catalytic questions. Yeah. And what are, and this relates to what you said earlier about when you're in a conversation, are the questions I'm asking to make me look smart right. or to actually Serves. peel away yeah, yeah. a layer and reveal something else yeah. that can contribute to the conversation? So the, uh, so we use the appreciative inquiry method at the Modern Elder Academy, and which is based upon the premise that questions can actually lead to it's like a it's like a flashlight on potentialities. So what does that mean? Uh, often you could have questions that shut a person down, mm-hmm. or that are yes no answers, not open ended, or that are critical. Yeah. But this is the opposite of that. This is saying, how could you ask a question in such a way that helps a person to see the possibility and the potential in something? Mm. And so I you know I, I'm a big believer in it because it's. It's sort of like having being on a journey with someone. It's like, uh, have you considered this? Or, you know, tell me what does that feel like in your body when you imagine what this is going to look like three years from now? Mm-hmm. You know, this the idea that you help a person to sort of see their path and to see the potentiality is allows them to have some see you might have some confidence that they can actually live up to that. And this is not about being uh, Pollyanna it, it, because it's, it, it is meant the, the questions are meant to serve and they're not meant to just say, you're right, you're right. But they are meant to sort of ask, like if someone's someone who's, if there's someone who's typically in their heart a lot, I like to ask questions that help people to get into their head. Mm. So like, so what's an example oh, of that? So someone who has a tendency to like, oh, talk about how much they love this or that, or they, they, it, it's a dream for them. Da, da. It's like, okay, so what are the first three steps you can take mm. to actually start living that out? Yeah. Now that's a question you'd ask to someone who's actually naturally in their heart. For someone who's naturally in their head, they can sometimes actually be in a maze the maze of their brain and the, like a, the, the ghetto of the neighborhood of their brain where the question that I would love to ask there is like, so what's your heart telling you? Or, you know, what does your intuition say that this is going to look like three years from now? Yeah. Or, you know, what, what emotion would serve you best right now to actually help you get to your goal? Mm. And those are not questions that if someone who's in their mind often would ask themselves. So the value of appreciative inquiry is you're asking questions that a person probably would not have come up with on their own. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. And that takes a real, that takes a real commitment, right? Uh, uh, It does. Of intentionality. Yeah. It has to be, you know, serving the other person, but also over the course of asking questions, understand what will serve them. Right. Because if someone's in their brain, and they're like sort of in a in a in a doom loop in their brain around something. Asking them something else that's going to keep them in the doom loop won't be helpful. So mm. helping them to move outside of that doom loop to sort of say, okay, let's take the, a different angle here. So it's really just helping people to have a different perspective. For those who are interested, I would just Google appreciative inquiry, and you'll learn more about it. Okay, that's amazing. Let's talk about Modern Elder Academy because yes. I think this is the coolest thing, and yeah. I'm Thank you. bound and determined to find one that I can that I can come to. Yeah, uh, workshop at some point. So the the premise of <clears throat> MEA Modern Elder Academy was 
I was at Airbnb. I was their modern elder. I was going to write this book, Wisdom at Work, The Making of a Modern Elder. I started writing that down in Baja in an hour north of Cabo San Lucas, uh, so in Mexico, southern Baja, below the, you know, the state of the U.S. state of California. And as I was writing my book there, I had a Baja aha. <laughs> I had an, an epiphany, and the epiphany was, why is it that we don't have midlife wisdom schools, a place mm. where people in midlife can reimagine and repurpose themselves, cultivate their wisdom, and maybe reframe their relationship with aging? Yeah. And because actually there's a fascinating stat from Yale's uh, Becca Levy. She says that when a person moves from a negative to a positive perspective on aging, they gain seven and a half years of additional life. Sure. Pretty amazing. So started it and uh, we have over 3,000 alums from 42 countries who've come down to Baja and come to one of our programs. We are opening in Santa Fe New Mexico uh, in early 2024, where there's an opera house there. I've conducted there, yeah, yes. Wow. <laughs> I have not been there yet, so I'm excited to go there. Oh, uh, let's, uh, yeah, let's go. Okay. Let's, yeah. Uh, and uh, yeah, and we our workshops are, uh, generally speaking, are helping people to imagine how do you go through a midlife transition, whether that's a career transition or a marriage transition or your parents passing away or empty nest or menopause or health diagnoses. So there's a lot of things that people go through during this era. The average age of people who comes 54, but you know, we've had people as young as 28 and as old as 88. Hmm. So it's exciting because we're the first of our kind out there doing this. Yeah. And I love this idea of doing it in community. There's so much research that shows the number one variable for living a, a healthy, happy, longer life is your social relations, your sense mm-hmm. of community. To be in a cohort for a week where you get to learn about each other from the inside out as opposed to from the outside in mm-hmm. and to actually use a series of questions that are, create life-changing conversations is the gift that I have today to offer to the world. And it's not just me. It's a great team. Uh, My two co-founders, Jeff and Christine, as well as just a bunch of amazing facilitators and faculty. So it's important because, you know, I I lost five male friends to suicide during the Great Recession, age 42 to 52. and, And I had my own suicide ideation during that time as well. And I will just say that, uh, we don't really do a very good job of helping people to understand midlife. Yeah, It's a life stage that's like the Rodney Dangerfield life stages. For those who don't know Rodney Dangerfield, he's a, an old comedian who said, uh, I don't get no respect. And midlife doesn't get any respect as a life stage. And so I've loved you know, the idea of giving this era of life, which is a long era of life. Midlife can last depending on who you listen to. Some sociologists think think it lasts from 35 to 75. Right. (laughs) That's a long time for us to not really be very smart about what is going to nourish and support and inspire people and empower them. Uh, And so that's what we do. I love what you're saying about how we don't we don't talk about that enough and we don't talk about this era of life. And we have these sort of silly tropes around it. Like, mm-hmm. Oh, you have a midlife crisis and go buy a Ferrari yes. or something or you know, have an affair <laughs> or whatever. Yes. But that it is really, especially you're doing a lot of work in sort of longevity, mm-hmm. like the panel you were yeah. on this morning at yeah. South by, you know, get ready for get ready your hundred year, year life. life yeah. Know? 
So, right, this is also, this is a part where, you know, a couple generations ago, like you said, you know, we would, this would be the burnout, you know, mm -hmm. kind of coming after retirement. But yep. that's that's a very different thing. And it's really critical that as people advance, they feel like mm -hmm. what they've spent their time building and learning and the wisdom that they've mined out of doing that is is important in our society yeah. and is utilized. Yeah, I, you know, when you listen to studies or read studies that show why do people commit suicide or uh, take their own lives in in midlife the two words that are that most come up are useless and irrelevant yeah and oh, actually i'm sorry useless and worthless with irrelevant being right behind that and you know that that in many ways is how society american society tends to look at people as we age you're not only not youthful but you're not useful either right right <laughs> uh and so I think one of the most important things we can do is in, in for people in their life is to help them to see their gift. The, the meaning of life is to find your gift. The purpose of life is to give it away. And mm. how do you help people to find their gift? How do you help them to know that there's something useful in that gift? And then how do they give it away? Because actually that's good for society. Huh. Uh, huge, yeah. right? I mean, what a gift. to. I mean, you for... will have mentees <laughs> if you don't already have them who you're going to teach your, your craft to. Right. And you are, I'm sure, already doing that. But as you get older, you'll have more of that because you had people do that for you. Another conversation from this season that gave me several new perspectives and practices was my chat with Amy Gallo. And there was so much to learn from her about healthy conflict and difficult conversations so that you can have stronger relationships at work and at home. And this is something that I think is so critical to think about how we have enlivened relationships that have healthy conflict. This is something that has really taken me a lot of time in, in life to, to, to practice and, and to get better at not seeing disagreement um, and even argument as something that has to be charged with all of these negative emotions and um, to, you know, not let myself go to this place of just viewing someone as wrong because we don't agree. And so I really loved how Amy brought some wonderful insights about how healthy relationships have conflict in them and have this tension and that that's part of it. And then actually knowing how to navigate that is the key to an enlivened relationship. Um, I especially love this section uh, from the conversation about challenging the stories that we tell ourselves about the people in our lives. Take a listen. Can you tell us what is amygdala hijack? And then the second part of that I'd love to talk about is how, what's the avenue out of it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So um, the, the most people probably know of amygdala hijack as like fight or flight or fight, flight or freeze. Often people know of that. Um, and it's, it's the, you know, our brains are, are designed to sense for threats. It keeps us alive to do that. And when we do sense a threat, whether it's something super minor, like mm -hmm. I 
you know, not getting my way on a project plan or something really big, like being chased down by a bear, which hopefully few of us have experienced, <laughs> our brain starts preparing to protect ourselves. And that means shutting down the sort of rational thinking part of our brain and letting the instinctive, reactive part of our brain, which is the amygdala, to take over. Um, and it's really, I mean, you know, your heart rate starts to go up. Um, you know, you're you're um, shutting down essential, uh, non-essential systems. You're essentially getting ready to run, which is super helpful if you're being chased by the bear, far less helpful if you're not getting your way on the project plan. And in that mode, you just don't make good decisions. We go into something that social scientists called premature cognitive commitment, which is like we make snap judgments and we stick to them because they, yes. it seems very true to us, right? right? Like, so let's say you and I start getting, have a debate in a conference room, right? Like the minute I start getting triggered, for lack of a better word, or start going to the amygdala hijack, I'm starting to tell myself stories like, well, Tim's a jerk. Tim's always been a jerk. Like, and I get really stuck on that. Yeah. Um, and so that's that's the way it plays out in in our in interactions with with our co colleagues. The way out of it is often um, one trying to calm your nervous system. So doing things like breathing, drinking a cool glass of water, um, just sort of reminding your body and your nervous system that you are safe. So trying to sort of restore the access to that prefrontal cortex. I mean, you're not. Technically, you're not getting cut off from your prefrontal cortex. It's just that your amygdala is taking precedent over it. But you're trying mm. to restore that as a um, that as balance. a way of yeah, that balance yeah. exactly. And the other piece is to start challenging the stories you are telling yourself. So that the Tim is a jerk storyline, asking yourself like, wait, is Tim really a, like? Has he always been a jerk? Like, like what could be wrong? How could I be wrong here? What else might be going on? Because that. That sort of open-mindedness allows you to take in more information and data and process it and make a better decision. It's like, well, you know what? Tim's under a lot of pressure, just like I am. He probably wants to prove he's right just the way I want to prove I'm right. Mm -hmm. Okay, let's see if we can find a path forward. Like, it just makes you a little bit more nimble and open-minded in the way you interact and you negotiate with the, with the other person. I think the other thing yeah. is we have to remember we're much more prone to go into amygdala hijack when we're not t taking care of ourselves, like we're underslept, we haven't eaten, right? We're not just sort of taking care of basic needs. And, and I think about this. This happened actually last night. I got an email that asked me to do a lot of things that I didn't want to do, and it was very last <laughs> minute. And it was 5.30. I had mm -hmm. had a really long day. I had to pick up my daughter, so I was really stressed out. And I freaked out about this email. And I was like, mm -hmm. I called this other person who was also involved in the project. I'm like, can you believe this? And I was like going. And then I could feel myself like because she she was actually being very reasonable. And she's like, I don't know. She really wants you to do all those things. Maybe just. And I was like, <laughs> I could feel myself sort of like slowly getting out of the amygdala hijack as I was like, wait a second. I'm hungry. I'm tired. Yeah. I'm stressed that I'm going to be late to pick up my daughter. I don't want to have to do all these things in a short time frame. Like. Okay, like deep breath and just sort of the self-talk I think can be really helpful too, which is like, is this as important as you think it is? Does this have to be taken care of right away? Like, can you take a walk around the block and just yeah. come back back to it later? I, I love that recent real life example. 
And it reminds me of really when you're setting up some context in the beginning of the book. I, actually, I'll just read a little excerpt if that's okay. Mm. Um, of course. It's before you can begin to work on the dynamic between you and a difficult colleague, and I dot, 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 you have to understand your own reaction to it, why it's bothering you, why it's painful, why you can't let it go even though you want to. And it doesn't hurt to have a little compassion for yourself. Mm-hmm. And I, w- what I thought was really interesting about this principally is it involves this sort of looking inward, right? And, and, and how you also use a term, you know, cleaning up your side of the street, right? And so when, you, when you're in these relationships, that it is a two-way dynamic relationship, right? And like you're saying, the more of these stories you create around someone, the deeper that hole gets. This whole thing of having to have this balanced view and being willing to take on responsibility mm-hmm. ourselves. Yeah. I mean, and I think taking responsibility, not because it's because you have to or that it it's or that you it's it, truthfully, it's just the only thing we can tr- control. Like mm. I can't. I can't make my colleague be less pessimistic. I can't make them be more direct and not passive aggressive. I can figure out how I'm contributing to the dynamic. I can change the way I interact with them to encourage them to behave differently. I can be compassionate toward them and what they might be going through and what they're struggling with at the same time as I'm compassionate toward myself and acknowledge that this situation is really hard and is taking a toll on me. Mm. The reason I feel comfortable giving that advice, even though I know it doesn't sit well with everyone, (laughs) is because I do think it's the only thing truly that we have control over is our own thoughts, reactions, feelings. By far, and I mean by far, the most popular episode from this season was an intimate conversation I had with my brother, Jeff. And the download numbers seem to indicate that this conversation really struck a chord with all of you, too. Uh, The why behind this episode was particularly strong for me in that my brother and I, there's 10 years between us, and we have vastly differing views on what most people would consider to be key issues. And that is something to which I know most, if not all of you can relate, right? I, not, I, I don't know. Does anyone have a life where all of your relationships are people with whom you agree on everything? I doubt it. And for your sake, I hope not. Whether it's a family member, friend, or colleague, we're bound to have differing beliefs from people in our lives. And with my brother Jeff, though we have these disparate views and worldviews, beliefs, etc. We've always been able to have a constructive dialogue and a mutual respect. And, you know, in my conversations with Jeff over years and years and years, I've always felt heard. Like when we're talking about these things and in especially when we're talking about things uh, on which we disagree, that I've always left the conversation having having this feeling of wow, I was really heard and understood and respected. So I wanted to chat with him on the podcast and explore how we've had this meaningful relationship that bridges our differences 
to see if we could tease out some tools that others might be able to apply. Now, as, as my conversations with Jeff tend to go, it was deep and long. And so there, there was a lot of stuff that didn't make the final cut of the episode. And my team and I thought it would be interesting to bring some of that stuff in and let you hear um, some of the continued conversation uh, that we weren't able to include. So here's a little clip uh, where we're getting into the context of listening and understanding people and their decisions. Isn't that one of the hardest things about listening is that we've got such an awareness of time. I really want to hear you. I've got another meeting in 15 <laughs> yeah. minutes. Yeah. <laughs> it, but in really good, you know, in, in meditation and in prayer, you find yourself um, losing track of space and mm -hmm. time. And it's, it's actually a brain function. The part of your brain that is orienting you to space and time begins to uh, relax and go dim mm. when you're involved in meditation. And that's why people say they felt that in meditation they touched the divine. Mm. And, I, and I'm not, I am not saying that it's just brain function. Right. Because there, there's actually, I, I believe in an immaterial reality that exists outside of us. It's not just brains, it's our mm -hmm. minds. But, but it is, isn't it interesting how our brains can actually cooperate? Mm. Well, what would happen if we could approach conversations in that yeah. way? I don't even know <laughs> how you would do it, but I know when it happens. Right. When I'm in a conversation and with somebody and we're connecting and I don't even realize two hours have passed. Mm. Mm. Amazing. It's, it's a, it, it can be a really intimate thing, right? Um, when you oh, get yeah. into that space of a conversation with someone and it, it can be, I think because we are not really established in practicing that it can, it actually happened, you, were, you mentioned that bonus episode um, of the first season that with my buddy, uh, Mina Hannah, and that was, we did that one in person, um, which, was, mm. which was great, but we finished and he commented, he said, I didn't expect this to feel so intimate. And I, I had had the same experience in, in the room of, not quite understanding the energy, right? But when two people are in that zone where they're really fully engaged, um, there's something very deep that happens. And it's incredibly gratifying. You could say we were made for this. It was, I think it was our, I think it was our design and you know, I've had people say, you know what? I got this truth. I want to get this point out. I wish I could just broadcast it to the whole mm -hmm. world. And, and you think, no, actually you don't. Mm. Because if you want people to hear it, you have to go there. Mm. You have to incarnate that message. You can't just broadcast it. Uh, and we do this in international diplomacy. Why don't we just say, send letters back and forth to somebody who's threatening war? Mm -hmm. No, we go there. We have a person who represents the nation who goes there, yeah. sits down with the individual and attempts mm. over the course of hours and hours, dozens of hours, to try to find some points of connection. 
that's a really good model for for conversation. But again, it's it, it in the fast pace of society, sometimes it just feels like an unattainable ideal. Mm. Mm. I this is a, a moving a little bit off the topic where we're sitting right now, but I was listening to um, an interview the other day with a historian, and I think I have this right. I mean, he uh, in, he practices what he calls counterfactual history, which is the idea that what if what resulted from a situation was not what resulted, right? And really going back, and and so instead of judging from where we are now with the the empirical knowledge that we have over time lived or events taking place or whatever has happened of actually going back and really recreating it from the vantage point of people who were there making those decisions and what if they had decided differently uh mm. you know during the cuban missile crisis there was a russian submarine commander who gave an order to fire a nuclear-tipped missile, right? I mean, and so we were a, a hair's breadth away from World War III. And it's so interesting to think about when we look at some of these issues that present themselves, what could happen if we really dialed back the clock also to really truly understand the context in which these decisions were made instead of just judging them from a position of of privilege and i and i don't mean privilege i i i i'm i mean privilege just in the sense of we're later and we have hindsight yes yeah yeah yes so looking back from our standpoint it's some of the things that say the founders of the united states did seem crazy and and hypocritical and how could they ever arrive at that? Um, I actually had a friend, who's a professor at, a, at one of the top universities who would ask his students, uh, do you think you would have made decisions differently? Mm. And they say, oh yes, I absolutely would have made them mm -hmm. differently. Well, tell me a time in your life where you stood against everybody else around you when they were attacking you because of the position that you mm -hmm. took. And if you can't tell me about a time where that happened for you, then don't tell me you would have made different decisions in that mm. time. You would have gone along with the majority just like almost everybody else does. Yeah. And I th it, was, it was a great warning to me that we don't get, <laughs> as much as we would like to control the narrative, uh, we really don't get to. We just get to be in this moment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, beautifully said. Okay, here is one more special clip from the cutting room floor. This entire clip did not make it into the final episode, but I wanted you to hear it because I think it beautifully illustrates the deep and abiding connection that Jeff and I have as brothers that goes far beyond our differing viewpoints and um, involves a really, a really personal story. Um, that he recounts. And so I, I think you'll really enjoy hearing this and I hope it inspires you to have a deeper connection with someone close in your life. I don't know if people think about artistic performances in this way, but I do. Mm -hmm. 
uh, since I'm your yeah. brother and I've been to these performances. <laughs> and I, I remember um, uh, one performance where you had been in a very serious car accident. Oh yeah. And you pushed forward with the performance. And I just remember this sense of, oh, just sort of inside cheering for you to make it all the way through, but feeling like I'm, I got to be close to the aisle because if he collapses, <laughs> yeah. I'm going to run up there. I'm going to rescue him because he's my brother. Yeah. And, and, you know, there was such beauty. And to me, and again, I'm going to tear up because in that moment, I saw your bravery, your persistence, your stubbornness, <laughs> but at the same time, your pursuit of the art. And that became part of the story. Yeah. And you know what's amazing? I'm not sure anybody except family members who were there yeah. knew. Yeah. But it shaped our story. Right. So, so it doesn't have to always just be a corporate meeting. Mm. It can be the individual coming together, uh, the, the coming together of all the individual pieces mm. that make up the social body in such a way that we we just feel more connected to one another. Yeah. I think that's possible in conversation. I don't think it's easy, you know, it's sort of the age of kind of a Grubhub narcissism mm. where we just, you know, I have to have it my way at the right time, exactly the menu items that I want or else I'm not obligated to do or think anything. In that age, it's pretty tough. Mm. I, I do hold out hope that it's possible and I'm cheering for you in this project because I just love the whole direction you're going with it. Mm, thank you. It's I love this I Grubhub narcissism. You know, of as <laughs> as if this Grubhub is not a corporate sponsor of this program. <laughs> definitely not now. Um, uh, <laughs> but no, thinking about it in the context of like you said, having exactly what I want at the time that I want it, or I don't engage is that's really a, that's false, isn't it? That's because you are engaged, right? You, you are living in the yeah. world, whether or not you, you are choosing to engage in a meaningful way is, is what's at stake. I always, when I'm, when I'm coaching, younger artists, I, I often will say, you are always making a choice. Not making a choice yeah. is also a choice. It's just a bad one. <laughs> it's, mm -hmm. it's an uninformed mm -hmm. one, mm -hmm. right? But, but, you, yeah. but you were always making a choice. And I think this is something else societally that we have to really reckon with is you can't just choose to not engage in the world in which you're living. And if you do, it's at your own peril. Now that's not to say that you need to be doom scrolling and trying to take on the weight, the anxiety, coming back to anxiety. This is, in my opinion, why so many people are struggling massively with anxiety is because the media especially is making us feel like it's our job to be worried about every single thing that goes on. And as if we right. could impact it. And of course, there is a context of concern, right, for, for things going on. I'm very concerned about the Ukraine. 
Yeah. I also have to be authentic and say that I, I, I'm not actively doing anything uh, to engage with the issue. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, this idea that you can just not engage in the world or in life, I think is a, a, a misnomer, isn't it? I remember visiting with a student in one of our programs and I, I get to work with organization works with about 70,000 young people a year. And I personally interact with hundreds of them. And I, I asked them, so what are the core beliefs that really are at the, the basis of your life? And he said, Oh, I, I don't really, I don't have any beliefs. I said, Oh, so that's interesting. So, if you had to summarize your core belief, it would be that beliefs aren't really important. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he said, yeah, <laughs> that's it. I said, okay, so you have a core belief. Right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I might say to someone who doesn't have a lot of knowledge about a particular situation, it's not just that they don't have the knowledge, it's that they may have been in a certain situation in life where knowledge about that kind of thing wasn't prized or valued or rewarded. Or possibly, and, and you know, we, we both, both grew up in areas where, you know, if you said, I think I know this here, and people would shoot you down just for having the temerity to talk mm. about it. Like, cause you, you're not, you're, you're just, you know, you're being, uh, you're being snooty if you think about that kind right. of thing. Uh, it, and it, it's a, so people have all of that going in their lives but it's, it's not just what you know, it's what you believe about knowing. And, and if you start thinking at that level, you're exactly right. There's no way to not be engaged in the world. But if you're choosing a posture of what we would call non-engagement, you're missing the opportunity to really live. Right, and there's a lot of power in choosing to engage with that. The power, yes, the power of of uh, sensing your own connection to other people and to your environment, uh, but also the power of knowing that you can take risks mm-hmm. and that the avoidance of failure is not not the goal. I quoted earlier from a Wordsworth poem uh, that I just I, I found fascinating because you know. Um, I just said Wood, Wordsworth. It's not Wordsworth. It's Longfellow, <laughs> Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. Uh, but in his in his, in his poem, he 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 picks up on this this the the connection between our actions and what all of this means. Mm. And he says, "Tell me not with mournful numbers, life is but an empty dream, mm. for the soul is dead that slumbers, and things are not what they seem." Life is real, life is earnest, and the grave is not its goal. Mm. Dust thou art to dust returneth, was not spoken of the soul. Not enjoyment and not sorrow is life's destined end or way, but to act that each tomorrow find us farther than today. Mm. And you'll like this stanza, art is long and time is fleeting. And our hearts, though stout and brave, still like muffled drums are beating funeral marches to the grave. 
in the world's broad field of battle, in the bivouac of life. Be not like dumb driven cattle. Be a hero in the strife. Trust no future, however pleasant. Let the dead past bury its dead. Act, act in the living present, heart within, and God o'erhead. Lives of great men all remind us we can make our lives sublime. And departing, leave behind us footprints in the sands of time. Footprints that perhaps another, sailing o'er life's solemn main, a forlorn and shipwrecked brother, seeing, shall take heart again. Mm. So let us then be up and doing with a heart to any fate, still achieving, still pursuing, learn to labor and to wait. Wow. That's really powerful. That's the connection. That's time and timelessness touching. And dear listeners, there you have it. Thank you so much for joining us for the second season of Listening on Purpose. We're already hard at work on season three with an amazing slate of guests who will continue to bring diverse and profound insights that help us better understand ourselves, others, and how to have deep and meaningful connections to those around us. I have a request for you. If you're enjoying this podcast and finding it impactful, would you please, whatever platform you're listening on, give us a rating and a review that really, really helps to um, spread the, the podcast to more people. And most importantly, if there's an episode that you really connected to, would you share it with people? Um, it's a great gift that you can give to people in your lives um, if there's something that impacted you to pass that along. So um, if you would do those things, that would be incredible and really help the show a lot. Thanks again for being with us this season. Can't wait for season three. See you soon. Thank you for listening to Listening on Purpose, hosted by me, Timothy Myers. I hope you're enjoying our deep dive into the world of listening and that you're finding it useful in your life. Please be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. And if you're enjoying the show, please share it with others and leave a rating and review. That really helps. You can visit listeningonpurpose.com for show notes and to subscribe to our email newsletter, which includes special episode highlights, more information about our guests, advance notice of some upcoming special events, and other news. You can find out more about me at timothymyers.com and from there connect with me on social media platforms like Instagram, LinkedIn, and Facebook. Listening on Purpose is a production of Extra Musical. Executive producers are Meredith Carter of Maduras Media and yours truly. Creative strategist is Julie Fiore. Listening on Purpose is edited by Brian Baltashevitz for Balto Creative Media. Our original music was composed by DJ Spar and performed by DJ and Kimberly Spar. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you next time for Listening on Purpose.